If you please turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 this morning. And I'm taking a break from my normal book of Proverbs study that I do in the, in the evenings in honor of the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which is this month in October. And we're going to look at the man who started it all. We're going to look at Martin Luther. And we're going to look at the five solas of the Reformation this evening. And then on October 30th, in the morning, Lord willing, I will preach another Reformation Day sermon uh, during the morning service. And this sermon will focus on John Calvin and will focus on the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. So that's what we'll be looking again, Lord willing, on the 30th. Well, these two little verses that we're going to look at this evening, <coughs> Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, these little verses have literally changed the world. About 505 years ago, an, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, he stumbled upon these verses, and they completely changed his understanding of God and how we as fallen sinners can relate to an all-powerful, perfectly pure, perfectly holy God. And what Luther discovered was nothing new. It had been obscured, obscured in the medieval church, but when this biblical teaching was rediscovered, it spread like wildfire and it launched the Protestant Reformation. So Romans chapter 16 verses, Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these two verses and the power that these verses have and how you use these verses in the life of Luther, in the life of Augustine before him, and in the life of countless other saints who saw the clear and pure gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith in this verses. So, Lord, we pray for this sermon this evening. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with me, your spirit to be with all of us. And, Lord, as we hear the gospel again proclaimed, Lord, that we will never cease to be amazed by grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, October 31st, many of us think of ghosts and, and goblins. And many of us think of, of Halloween. But something vastly more important than ghosts and goblins, vastly more important than Halloween is celebrated on October 31st. In fact, it's really the most important message ever heard, a message that literally has uh, eternal significance for each one of us, was rediscovered on October 31st. October 31st, 1517, this obscure Roman Catholic monk and theology professor named Martin Luther, he nailed to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, what has been known as the 95 Theses. And these 95 theses, these were short little theological statements that challenged the core teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the understanding of the gospel, and challenged really how a sinner is, is saved, how a sinner is made right with God. See, Luther really only intended to start a scholarly discussion. Uh, professors at, at that time would nail to the door things that they wanted to talk about and wanted to discuss, similar to how we would use social media, post something on a, on a, on a bulletin board on, on the Internet for something we wanted to discuss. 
And Luther didn't uh, didn't expect what resulted. So his 95 theses were taken down. They were copied. They were translated. And this is when the, the printing press was, was just uh, developed. And they were widely circulated, circulated throughout Europe. And they sparked this Protestant Reformation, which is a complete reorganization of the Christian church. And it was an attempt to, to reform the church, to bring it back to the teachings of the apostles, back to the teaching of the Bible. And see, the church had gotten so far away from Scripture at this time, the medieval church would not even ever even been recognized by the apostles. The gospel of grace had been lost. It was replaced by a, a sacramental system where the sinner constantly needed to do good works to receive the necessary merit to achieve salvation. See, the, the medieval Christian lived in this state of constant fear, never knowing whether he did enough to be saved, fearing that at any moment he could have committed a, a mortal sin. And this is a sin that if not confessed to a priest and not uh, received the sacrament of, of penance, would damn their soul, eternally damn their soul. And even if they didn't commit a mortal sin, even if they did everything they were required to do, they still had no way to know if they actually did enough. Enough to merit heaven. That's what they were trying to do. And even if they were in a state of grace, which means they were, were baptized and they had not commit, committed a mortal sin, it was still likely that they would still spend years, maybe even thousands of years, in the torments of purgatory, the fires of purgatory, to be purged of their sin through this suffering and, and because of their failure to, to earn enough merit to reach heaven. And the Protestant Reformation was sparked by Luther's personal struggle. See, Luther had no interest in starting a new church. What he was really worried about is he was worried about his own soul. He desperately needed to know how he himself could be made right with God. He needed to know how he could escape eternal damnation, how he could escape the wrath of God. And this is, this is not just a, a history lesson about this little German monk 500 years ago. This question is relevant to every single person who's ever lived, every single one of us. In fact, it's the most important question anyone can ask. How can I, a sinner, a rebel against God, how can I be made right with a holy God? How can I escape the wrath and justice of a holy God? And this question, again, literally has eternal relevance to every single one of us, every one of us here, every one of us on this planet. So there's a little background about Luther. Luther was intense. He was the best monk. He worked the hardest. He prayed the most. He was the most diligent in, in everything that he did. He gave 100% every single thing he did. And if anyone could display enough devotion, if anyone could display enough religious fervor to earn salvation, it was Martin Luther. But Luther's fellow monks, they, they thought because of, of this intense devotion that Luther showed to his calling and, 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 to, and to prayer and, and, and to service and, and, and to and to devotion to God, they figured that he must really love God. But Luther replied, love God? Love God? Sometimes I hate God. Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. And he says, to the gallows, to the gallows with Moses. See, the reason that Luther hated God was because Luther knew that no matter how hard he worked, no matter how much he prayed, no matter how many hours he spent in his confession, he did. He would spend hours, like three hours a day in the confessional. And to one point where the priest actually told him, go away and don't come back until you actually commit a real sin. 
So he would think, he would go into the confession and say, I was confessing for the wrong reasons, or I forgot something when I was in there, or I had impure motives to confess it. And they said, get out of here. Come back when you have a real sin to confess. But Luther knew, no matter how great a monk he was, he knew he could never meet God's standard. And Luther understood the perfection of God. He understood the holiness of God. And he knew there was no way that he could measure up. He knew that God would be perfectly right, perfectly just to cast him into hell. And the saddest part, the worst part for Luther, there was absolutely nothing that he could do about it. And this knowledge drove Luther to the brink of insanity. But the thing is, Luther wasn't wrong. The fact that his fellow monks were not in this state of constant dread was not because they succeeded where Luther had failed, no. They were not worried because they did not have an accurate view of God, who God was, of God's holiness. They were all blissfully ignorant of the danger that each one of them were in. And not unlike each one of us. Not unlike the person who says, I don't have to worry. God, God will see all my good deeds and all the good things I've done. And God knows that I tried to live a good life. I've done my best. I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anyone. Right? You hear that all the time. That's what people think. I haven't killed anyone, so I must be okay. I must not be a sinner. Or if I kill someone, I didn't kill anyone who didn't deserve to be killed. So I must be okay. My friends, if any of us, if any of us, no matter how good we have been, no matter how devout we have been, no matter how much effort we, we expend to, to please God, if any of us looks to something that we have done to make us right with God, to save ourselves, then we are in big trouble. If this is anyone in this room, which I really doubt that it's anyone in this room, but if it's anyone who, who may hear this recording years from now, you should tremble. You should tremble just like Martin Luther trembled. Because Luther understood who God is. He understood that God is holy. He understood that we are not holy. And then a beautiful thing happened to Luther. Then an amazing thing happened. Then Luther encountered these two verses from Romans, and his eyes were opened. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Martin Luther something that he had never seen before. And this insight eternally changed Luther. And it uncovered the biblical gospel that had been long obscured by the medieval church. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what Luther discovered was the gospel. He discovered the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. See, Luther had gotten it wrong. Most of the church had gotten it wrong. The gospel is not something that we do. It's not something that we reach up to God. It's not something we do to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to God. See, this is why Luther was driven to insanity. What he desperately needed was something that was impossible for him to do. And what the Holy Spirit revealed to Luther was that the gospel was not something that we do. The gospel is something that God does. And my friends, this changes everything. Not something we do, something God does for us. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's God's power. God's salvation is given. It is freely given. And it is given to everyone who believes. There is no distinction. 
It is given to the Jew. It is given to the Greek. It is given to the black man. It is given to the white man. It is given to the male. It is given to the female. It is given to rich. It is given poor. There is no distinction. The key is not who you are. It is not what you have done. It is given to all who believe. The key is faith and faith alone. It's not faith and faith. It's not some feeling. It is faith in Christ. It is the object of trust is Christ. Not some generic Savior, but he has to be my personal Savior. It is trust in God's promises given to us in the Bible. Verse 17 simply reinforces this point. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther was seeking to be righteous before God. He was seeking to earn his salvation. But Scripture says we cannot do this. Scripture tells us for the wages of sin is death. It's the only thing Luther could have earned. The only thing any one of us could earn is death. There is no way. No way that any one of us could merit salvation. The medieval sacramental system was broken. It could save no one. But thankfully, thankfully, this verse does not end here. This verse that says, for the wages of sin is death. It says also, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this free gift of God is given to us by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his perfect person. Faith in his work. And we can never by our own effort. We can never in our own effort be made righteous in God's sight. But God declares us righteous. And this righteousness is received by us by faith alone. And the reason we can be declared righteous, not guilty in God's sight, is not because of anything we have done, but only because what Christ has done. Christ was perfectly righteous. Christ was perfectly innocent. But we are guilty. We are not righteous. But God did a swap. He took our sin and he gave it to Christ. He punished that sin on the cross. And God took Christ's perfect obedience, Christ's perfect righteousness, Christ's perfect merit, and he credited it to us. And on the basis of Christ's merit, God declares us not guilty. God declares us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I read this morning, says, for our sake, God made him, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus took our sin, and we get his righteousness. And an illustration of this can be seen in Matthew 27, when Jesus is arrested, and he's standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Let me read these, Matthew 27, starting at verse 15. It says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas so when they had gathered Pilate said to them whom do you want me to release to you Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent and they said Barabbas and Pilate said to them then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ they all said let him be crucified See, Barabbas, Barabbas was unquestionably guilty. He, des- he was there for what he deserved. He was unquestionably guilty. And Barabbas represents each one of us. See, we are unquestionably guilty. We deserve death, just like Barabbas. We deserve crucifixion, but we are released. Again, just like Barabbas. And why? 
Because Jesus, Jesus who is perfectly innocent, takes our place. And we are given Jesus' innocence. And because of this, we are free. And scripture says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are free. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are now beloved children of God. And you can just imagine how this insight, how this discovery completely revolutionized Martin Luther's life and his outlook. His stress, his anxiety, they all melted away. He was filled with joy. He was filled with boldness. And Luther took to heart the first part of of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he was not ashamed of the gospel. He boldly proclaimed this newly rediscovered gospel. He proclaimed it with great power and with great joy. And when the gospel was rediscovered and, and released during this dark time, it could not be contained. And it swept all throughout Europe like a wildfire. And Luther then went from being this obedient and obscure monk to being number, the public enemy number one of the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. Luther's life was in constant danger and immediate danger. <clears throat> You see, the church did not want the gospel to be proclaimed. They really forbid, they forbid the, the, the people to even read the scriptures. See, what each of us have in our hands right now, this could get us killed. That's what it was in Luther's, in Luther's time. It could have gotten us burned at the stake during that time. And the reason the church feared the people having the scripture, the reason they feared the, the rediscovery of the gospel, the reason Luther was public enemy number one, was because the gospel was a direct threat to the church's power. See, this is because the the gospel brings freedom. The the people no longer needed to live in in fear that their eternal souls were were under bondage to this church's sacramental system. See, this system was used to control the people. It's a system the church could actually use. It would meter out grace. It was up to the church to give you grace or to give you God's favor or to hold it back, including salvation itself. And according to this system, the church held the eternal fate, literally heaven and hell, of every single person, including kings. They would have control over kings. If kings didn't believe it, they would then condemn the subjects, uh, causing the subjects to rise up against the kings because the subjects feared they were going to be going to hell. And the church did not want to give up this incredible power that they had. And out of the Protestant Reformation came five principles that really summarized this re discovered gospel. Five principles that show us how we can be made right with God, how we can be saved. And we're familiar with these principles because we hear these principles every Sunday. I use them every Sunday from this pulpit. They're known as the five solas of the Reformation. And sola is the the Latin word meaning alone. And these principles were originally given in Latin. And five years ago, some of you may remember, Travis and Jeremiah and I did a sermon series on the five solas for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We did one sermon on each sola. And these sermons are available on on our sermon audio site if you want to go into in in more detail. Now I'm just going to give a very brief, very brief summary of each of the five solas. But if you want to know more about it, check check out those individual sermons if you want to go into more depth on each. And these are the five solas. The first is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And what this teaches is that our final authority is not the church. It's not the pope. It's not church councils. It's not theologians. It is only scripture. It's only the Bible. The Bible alone. The teaching of the Bible is our final authority. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have other authorities. We certainly do. We hold the Westminster Confession of Faith, but the Confession does not stand above Scripture. It's not equal to Scripture. We believe that the Confession is a systematic presentation of what the the Scripture teaches, the doctrines taught by Scripture. So every confession, every church council, every theology textbook, every sermon is subordinate to Scripture. Sola Scriptura means that Scripture is the only authority. It's the authority we use to evaluate all these others. They, all these others must be subordinate to God speaking through his word, through the Bible. That's Sola Scriptura. The next one is Sola Gratia, grace alone. See, our acceptance before God comes from nothing we do. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. It is simply a gift from God. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. Sola gratia. Next one is sola fide, faith alone. And this says that the grace of salvation is received only by faith. And this faith itself is a gift. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we look at the, the doctrines of grace in a couple of weeks. But it is received nothing that we do, only by trusting in God. Trusting what he has done. Trusting what Christ has done on the cross. Trusting the promises given in God's word. Sola fide. Solus Christos. Christ alone. So our faith is not in faith. We don't trust the strength of our faith. We don't trust our church membership. We don't trust our Bible knowledge. We don't trust how much we pray, our piety, how much we fast, how much we give. We trust only Christ. We trust Christ alone. We trust his perfect righteousness that was given to us. We trust that he took upon himself all of our sins and that they were punished in Christ on the cross. And Christ is the only object of faith. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And the last one is sole deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. See, God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory in our salvation. When we are saved, people don't praise us. They don't say, oh, wow, what a wonderful job you did to get saved. Look how smart you are to be a Christian. Now, when we get saved, people say, look how great God is. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God grace? Isn't grace amazing that he can save a wretch like me? And the number one purpose of every single one of us, the number one purpose for every single one of us is God's glory. We are to make God look good in everything we do, in everything we say. People are to see God. People are to praise God. They are to glorify God. Soli Deo Gloria. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that every single person needs to hear. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we are a new creation. This is the most urgent need of our society. And like Luther, like Luther, every single one of us, every single person who has ever lived other than Christ, is under the wrath of God, facing God's eternal condemnation. And our only application of this sermon, our only application of the gospel, is to come to Christ, to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone. But to those of us who are Christians, and that's all of us in here, we are believers. We understand, we hear the gospel. But the gospel is still given to each one of us. See, we need not be fearful. We need not look at our past mistakes. We need not look at our past failures and worry that somehow God is done with us, that we'll only face his anger and his punishment. Now we have the gospel, the same gospel in the pages of Scripture. That's in the pages of Scripture. The same gospel that was rediscovered over 500 years ago and revolutionized the world. So I pray that each one of us will not be ashamed of the gospel, but we will boldly proclaim it everywhere we go, to everyone we meet, and cling to it, 
cling to it for our security, knowing that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for Martin Luther and the Reformers to rediscover the gospel. We praise you for the martyrs who've given up their lives to proclaim the gospel, to get Scripture into our hands. And Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray that we will be faithful to this gospel. We will never move past this gospel. We will never get bored of this gospel. We will continue to more and more be amazed by your grace, be amazed that you have given this to us. And Father, we do praise you for who you are. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.